Luke chapter 12 this evening, beloved. Luke chapter 12 is where we turn our attention this evening. Luke chapter 12, verse 22 for our reading. We are continuing through this gospel as the Lord gives us help, and we are around the middle, so plenty more to come, but in terms of the timeline, we're pushing much closer to the, the cross and the experience of our Lord Jesus at the climax of His work on our behalf, bearing our sin, suffering on our behalf and rising again from the dead. But Luke chapter 12, verse 22 is where we will commence reading tonight. I'm going to endeavor to deal with the portion that leads us to the end of verse 34. So there's a lot here, some of it familiar to you, but we trust the Lord will will bless the very reading of His Word. And He said unto His disciples, Therefore I say unto you, Take no thought for your life, what ye shall eat, neither for the body what ye shall put on. The life is more than meat, and the body is more than raiment. Consider the ravens, for they neither sow nor reap, which neither have storehouse nor barn, and God feedeth them. How much more are ye better than the fowls? And which of you, with taking thought, can add to his stature one cubit? If ye then be not able to do that thing which is least, why take ye thought for the rest? Consider the lilies, how they grow. They toil not, they spin not, and yet I say unto you that Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. If then God so clothed the grass which is today in the field and tomorrow was cast into the oven, how much more will he clothe you, O ye of little faith? And seek not ye what ye shall eat, Or what ye shall drink, neither be ye of doubtful mind. For all these things do the nations of the world seek after, and your Father knoweth that ye have need of these things. But rather seek ye the kingdom of God, and all these things shall be added unto you. Fear not, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Sell that ye have, and give alms. Provide yourselves bags which wax not old, a treasure in the heavens that faileth not where no thief approacheth, neither moth corrupteth. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Amen. And may the Lord draw near to us around His open word tonight. Let's pray. Let's seek the Lord, beloved. God, give help now. We we do have our trying times, our testing times, and sometimes we are brought to questioning Thee and doubting Thy power and even thy benevolent love, we pray that thou wilt help us to cast aside all doubt, and may faith rise in every trial and every temptation, and may we rest in all that thou hast said in thy word to we, thy people. Bless this message tonight. Encourage us, strengthen us, speak, Lord. We pray we might hear from the Lord, we might hear from our Savior, and the Spirit might meet with every soul and heart. I don't know the needs of those before me. Some need to be saved, perhaps. Some need counsel and comfort. 
Whatever the need, Lord, meet that need, we pray. Give us then the fullness of the Spirit in Jesus' name. Amen. Since the commencement of this chapter, our Lord Jesus has been issuing warnings towards two particular sins. The first one being that of hypocrisy, where we have in verse 1 a clear warning concerning that and the ongoing language of our Lord dealing with that particular issue. Then we have a warning of or towards covetousness, which again our Lord brings up and deals with in the context of this chapter. Both of these warnings are our attention is drawn to them by the word beware in our English translation. Verse 1, beware ye of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. And then also verse 15, take heed and beware of covetousness. Now, if you're reading your Greek New Testament, you would not maybe see the same correlation here because the Greek word for these words is, is different. One is a word in verse 1, it's a different word in verse 2, and though there is a certain uh, relationship between them, they, they say a similar thing, yet the language isn't exactly the same. And I was thinking about that, that maybe it was the translators desiring to draw attention to this and show these particular sins. I don't know their thinking behind it and why the word is kept the same in both places, but it does help us. It helps you to see that the Lord is dealing with two particular sins and wants you to understand that these are sins that you, as His child, you as a child of God, need to be on the alert concerning. These are problems that the disciples of Christ need warning about. And I said a couple of weeks ago that hypocrisy is a prevalent sin within the spiritual realm, whereas covetousness is a prevalent sin within the material realm. And last time we noted the interruption in verse 13 where one of the company standing, and again, our Lord has been addressing His disciples, verse 1, began to say unto His disciples, verse 4, He says to those He calls His friends, and then there's this one that interrupts in His perhaps mid-flow, we're not sure exactly, but He comes to say, Speak to my brother that he divide the inheritance with me. And then the Lord launches into the parable, the parable of the rich farmer, which we looked at last time. And in verse 22, where we're commencing tonight, he again turns to his disciples. That's what I want you to note. Verse 22, he said unto his disciples, his focus is on those that claim to be followers of his, that are part of the great company and claim a certain allegiance to our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, if you're here tonight and you claim allegiance to Christ and you say you are a disciple, He has you in view. These aren't warnings about sins for the people out there. They're warnings for people that claim allegiance to Christ and love towards Him. Again, look at verse 22. In His language, He said unto His disciples, Therefore, which ties us back into what he's already said, which brings us to remember what has preceded the parable of the rich farmer. And our Lord then wants us, as we progress through verse 22 and following, he wants us to keep in mind what he's already said. He wants us to be aware of the man who came asking about the matter of inheritance and for the Lord Jesus to intervene in that case. What was the issue with this man? The issue with this man was the same problem that the, the man in the parable had. He loved his life to the loss of his soul. 
He loved his possessions and all that relates to the material, to the loss of his soul. We have this warning when he is boasting in verse 18, I will pull down my barns and build greater based on this great harvest that he has enjoyed. There will I bestow all my fruits and my goods, and I will say to my soul, Soul, thou hast much goods laid up for many years. Take thine ease, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said unto him, Thou fool, this night thy soul shall be required of thee. This man lost what really mattered as he gave his life to what is transient and passing. Our Lord then closes in verse 21, closes his remarks at that juncture by saying, So is he that layeth up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. And that's a warning to the man who came and generated the context for the parable. And it's also a warning to everyone that's standing around. We are, we, are, we are fools if we lay up treasure for ourselves and are not rich toward God. And the sense is that men have a choice whether they keep everything for themselves or give away what they can for the glory of God. And so Christ continues. He continues with the same theme. He doesn't walk away with the whole concept of covetousness. He carries on. And reading this, I, I thought to myself, well, has he not said enough? I mean, he's dealt with this quite fully, and the warnings are explicit, and there's enough for us. I trust in recent times we have been feeling, feeling it. I know some have already testified to me that hearing these messages have had their kind of cutting effect and convicting work, which is a good thing. But our Lord doesn't leave it there. He carries on with this theme. He continues on, and if ever there was a message that must be understood by the church in the West amidst all our prosperity, it is language like this. The difference here, as we move through these verses before us tonight, it would appear that what our Lord was dealing with before was really the motivation of greed behind the covetousness. The man who came with the matter of the inheritance wanting Jesus to deal with that, he was already wealthy. And yet he's scrambling for whatever the context of what was bothering him on that occasion. He's looking for more. And the parable that our Lord tells, again, is the rich farmer. It, it told us early on, he, he was rich. He already was rich before the great harvest. So this covetousness that's addressed earlier is a covetousness that is kind of generated, motivated, moved by this, this sense of greed. Greed is driving the covetousness. But what our Lord deals with in the verses we look at tonight is a covetousness that is driven by anxiety. It's falling into the same sin for a different reason. It's when people don't have, when they're not rich, when they don't have everything, and they're concerned about how they will meet their day-to-day -day needs. It can still breed in the heart the same sin. And so our Lord, in one sense, what He is dealing with here is going to be of particular importance to His disciples and His people. They aren't the richest, though some of them seem to, Peter certainly seemed to be fairly well off. Levi would have had sufficient, I am sure, and others of them, no doubt, were doing okay in life. But they are going to, at some point, 
from that status of being comfortable, they're going to move into a new experience with regard to the relationship of material things. Some of their power and their time given to the generation of wealth is going to be taken away from them as they give themselves to the preaching of the gospel. And that raises all sorts of questions and may drive a different sense of this sin of covetousness in their hearts. Some of the language of the passage before us is familiar because it's addressed in the Sermon on the Mount. It's not the same context, not the same time, but preachers preach similar sermons on different occasions, and our Lord did the same. But at the heart of this passage is a call to the disciples of our Lord not to be anxious or fearful. Language of verse 22, 29, and 32 all kind of use language like that. Take no thought... Neither be you of doubtful mind, fear not, as you have in those verses referred to. And so tonight I want us to consider what I've titled, Anxiety's Antidote for God's Little Flock, or the Antidote for Anxiety for God's Little Flock, for His people. The anxiety that may be felt among the people of God. And there's an antidote that the Lord gives here. He doesn't go to the medicine cabinet. He doesn't send you to the chemist, to go and get some drugs he, he, he gives to you, here's a way to think about it. Here's how to deal with the natural feelings of anxiety that arise, particularly in terms of those that may be worried about whether they have enough or not. And there are three things, then, that he basically calls for change among those that are anxious. Those that are anxious need to change, all right? understand that. They're not to stay anxious. Our Lord's not satisfied for you to come to Him and say, I'm anxious about this, and He says, that's fine, that's just the way you are. That's not what our Lord does. He, he wants to medicate, but He medicates with truth. He medicates with His promises. He medicates with His Word. He gives you that which can change your life if you're willing to heed what He says. So the call then is threefold. There's a ch- call to change how you think, change what you seek, and change what you treasure. And I trust that that's helpful in terms of how we look at this portion here tonight. First of all, change how you think, verse 22 through 28. And there's a few things to note here. First, there's a general exhortation to change their thinking, verse 22 and 23. Read it here. Therefore I say unto you, take no thought for your life, what you shall eat, neither for the body, what you shall put on. The life is more than meat, and the body is more than raiment. This is a general exhortation. Take no thought. This language then is, is calling us to, to remove a sense of, of anxiety. That's the idea. Take no thought. It's, it's causing us to, to put the focus on the mind. That's where anxiety resides. That's where it lives. Anxiety isn't in the circumstances. It's in the mind of the one who feels the worry and the concern. And it's very real. And those of you, I think all of us have experienced it, I imagine if we're all human here, to some degree we've experienced it, but there's certainly those that have a propensity to it, and they have a propensity to it in different ways. It shows itself in various contexts, but I think what our Lord says here has much broad application regardless of what it is that moves a sense of anxiety in the heart. Our Lord wants us to change our thinking, change how you think. So he says, take no thought, verse 22. And then he's going to go on, and he uses the same word, verse 24, and then verse 27. Consider, 
Consider the ravens. Consider the lilies. This is getting us to, to change our thinking by observing the things that he points out for our attention. So he wants us to perceive. That's the idea of the word consider in verse 24 and 27. It's to perceive with the mind, to understand. And he says, therefore, take no thought, verse 22, take no thought, no anxious thoughts. Not like you're to be an unthinking person. He's not saying just kind of stop thinking. That would be akin to saying stop being human. You know, you can't do that. So, so we have to get the sense of what he's saying, take no thought. It's no anxious thought, no, no worry, no, no, no thought that weighs the soul down with despair. And in verse, I mean, verse 22 is fairly plain, I think. Take no thought for your life, what you shall eat, neither for the body, what you shall put on. The confusion comes in in verse 23. The life is more than meat, and the body is more than raiment. And I always read this as, your life has more value than food, and your body has more value than clothing. And I was thinking about that. Well, I mean, that's really obvious. I mean, obviously that's the case. But thinking about it more and looking over it, I suggest the possibility, even more than the possibility, that what Jesus is saying here, that our life has more to it than needing food, and our body has more to it than needing clothing. The life is more than meat. Life is more about the food that you eat or the need for food. And the body, there's more to it than just clothing it. So this is laying this general principle, like you have to think differently about your life and your very body and why God has given you what you have. He's going to drive towards, of course, the whole idea of elevating the kingdom, seeking His glory, all of that. We'll get there in due course. But He is laying then this general exhortation, change your thinking about this stuff. Now, of course, when He says this, take no thought for your life what you shall eat, neither for the body what you shall put on. He's not saying that food is unimportant or clothing is unimportant. He's not saying that. He's not even saying that you are to, to eat the worst kind of food and wear the worst kind of clothes. If you're to read that into it, you misunderstand the whole thing. Our Lord wore a garment that people were willing to almost fight over. They cast lots over it in the end. But it was a seamless garment. It was a garment that was like seeing a man wearing a Savile Row tailored suit what our Lord wore. So it wasn't like he wore cheap garments and he's saying here in the sense of take no thought, like just, just wear garbage, you have to wear the worst kind of clothes. That's not what he's saying. He wore garments that people cast lots for. And again, nor is he saying eat, eat garbage food, but the, the, the sense is this, this isn't your whole encompassing purpose. This is laying the foundation. It's not, it's not all about this. Life isn't all about this stuff. So it's a general statement that while food and clothing have their place, our life and our body is to be given to God and His glory. If I was to kind of put in a little more there than what he actually says at this point. So it's a general exhortation to change their thinking. And then there's multiple illustrations to change their thinking. Then he begins to illustrate. Verse 24. There is an illustration from ravens. Consider the ravens, for they neither sow nor reap, which neither have storehouse nor barn, and God feedeth them. How much more are ye better than the fowls? Now, don't forget the parable he just told. A man who had barns, they're full, and he has this great harvest, and he said, I'll pull down my barns and build greater. 
I'll just keep storing it all up for myself. And the Lord says, consider the ravens. An unclean bird, just to underline. Consider the ravens. They have no barns, no great storehouses, yet they're fed. They're fed by God. God takes care of them. He watches over them. And you understand this, his disciples ought to understand, how much more are ye better than the fowls? Of more value than the fowls? Of more significance than the fowls? And you think God, who watches over every, every raven, gives, gives the food that they need? These creatures that are so small and easily overlooked, they have no fields, no barns, no storehouses, no grocery stores, no refrigerators, and yet, and yet they are they're provided for every morning. And they awaken, I imagine, without any anxiety for the day ahead. I, I don't think they're going to the Raven, Dr. Raven, you know, to go and get medication. I, I say that, and there's a certain humor to it. I, I, I don't want you to think that I'm undermining the reality. Please don't go away as if I, I think lightly of anxiety. Our Lord understands. That's why the Bible is filled with fear knots. Filled with it. Anxiety is a reality. But He wants us to consider. He wants us to consider the ravens. Ravens. I was saved just under two years when the pressing sense of ministry was upon my heart, and God had, I felt, spoken to me, given clear indication that He wanted me to do some kind of ministry. It wasn't the pastor, at least in my mind at that point, but I felt this, this, this urge that was driving me forward that I, I should prepare myself for ministry. And I didn't have anything, materially, nothing. 21 years of age, and I really did not have much in the way of savings. My mom depended much on, on me as well to help with her, her needs and so on, trying to help uh, make ends meet. And I remember, I remember wondering, how, how, could I, how could I stop work for, what, at that time I was planning two years, how could I stop work for two years and actually survive? How could that be done? And I remember, I, I still, as, as I was preparing for this, it just came all flooding back to my mind. Job 38, 41. I couldn't remember the reference. But I, I looked it up. Job 38, 41. Who provideth for the raven his food? I still remember where I was, sitting in my bedroom, reading that text and just being hit. Who provideth for the raven his food? What am I worried about? So, carried on following the leading of the Lord. How much more are ye better than the fowls? The point is simple. As precious as the birds are, the Bible teaches that human beings are God's chief creation, and you especially as His people, His disciples, ought to know that you matter more than all of them. Consider the ravens. So he gives this first illustration to change their thinking. Consider the ravens. I, I want you to do that. I, I, just stop here. I want you to, to... You begin to hear it. It's beautiful. 
you got to hear more and more of springtime and hearing the birds singing their songs. And I tell you, I, I didn't realize I missed that until I, I moved here. Calgary, inner city, over a million people, you don't hear many birds sing. You don't. And part of that's the elevation. You're sitting around 4,000 uh, feet altitude, so that gets rid of some of the wildlife too, changes tree life and everything as well. But, but I didn't realize that I wasn't hearing it until I come to Greenville and it was like, all these birds, like, sure, it's like, man, I missed that. I missed that. Growing up in Northern Ireland, we heard the same, of course, although the, the songs are different. But I want you to think about it. I want you to think about those birds as they sing and they, they have no worries. Every time you're worried and you hear a bird sing, I want you to take the Lord as word and quell the thing that's causing concern in your heart. These creatures, so frail, yet they live on and God takes care of them. An illustration from ravens, an illustra- illustration from stature. Verse 25, which of you, with taking thought, can add to his stature one cubit? If ye then be not able to do that thing which is least, why take ye thought for the rest? Stature. What's he dealing with here? Well, in Luke chapter 19, we have the man, Zacchaeus, brought to our attention, which we're told was, didn't have much in the way of stature. His physical frame was short. But it can also be used with reference to age, and I think that's how we should take it, because think about it. Which of you, with taking thought, can add to his stature one cubit? Who's really worried about that? I mean, maybe some boys at a certain stage in their teenage years go through a little period of worry that they're not going to actually grow taller, you know. They see, they see girls, you know, they, they tend to tower over them in the, around the age of 12 or whatever. And then they start to worry and they see other boys grow. And there's maybe a little bit, but, but really, I mean, and then a cubit. A cubit, that's 18 inches. Wait, wait, who's wanting to add another 18 inches to their height? I mean... Really, I don't think we're really wanting the, the burden that, that comes along with that. So, so I, I don't think that's the sense of it. It's not adding to your height. We're not worried about that. But what we do, what is common to us, is to be concerned about longevity, how long we will live. And the Bible does use this language with reference to the blind man in John 9. You have the same word. It's translated, he is of age. And so I think that's what our Lord is getting at here. He is dealing with age, adding, adding one measurement of sort. He's using this illustratively. Maybe it's a minute, maybe it's a year, but it's adding time, adding time to life. And his disciples need to know this, or they should know this. This is, this is basic theology. Which of you, with taking thought, can add to a statue one cubit? By your anxiety and worry about how long you will live, can you add to it? Of course not. Of course not. If you then be not able to do that thing which is least, why take ye thought for the rest? With all your worry about trying to add to your life, and think of what that, that comes to, maybe how we clothe ourselves, but certainly how we eat. And all this worry about what are we going to eat? I mean, it's a huge industry. 
And people are legitimately anxious about it. And I think they were back then too. And the Lord says, you can't, you can't change anything. This is, this is basic theology. You know this. You can't, by thinking, by worrying, give yourself a longer life. And again, think of the context, the parable. Remember, this is the context. <laughs> he had great plans of living longer, didn't he? Laid up for many years. You've all you need for years. But that night, God called him into eternity. So that's what our Lord is dealing with. You can't add, you can't worry, you can't change anything in terms of your life. And then there's an illustration from flowers. Verse 27, Consider the lilies, how they grow. They toil not, they spin not, and yet I say unto you, that Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. If then God so clothed the grass, which is today in the field, and tomorrow is cast into the oven, that is, it dries up and it gets used to heat ovens that they use for cooking, how much more will he clothe you, O ye of little faith? These wild flowers across the meadows, the open spaces, they're beautiful. They are stunning. Now, some of you that are younger, you may not have paid much attention to the beauty of God's creation. But you should. Look, look at the flowers. Look, look at how they appear. Look at their colors, their textures, their scents. I mean, we, could, we, we marvel at some of them. You just take the time to actually look. And every spring they bud forth. And the Lord says, if you really pay attention to these flowers, if you look at them, the beauty of them, even Solomon, Solomon who'd, who tried to array himself and, and sought to adorn himself with, the, the, with that which was, I guess, fitting for his position and his wealth, still, can't come close to what God makes out in the fields there. Out in the fields which, which eventually dry up, that grass that you take and you, you kind of gather it up and you cast it into the oven. And yet God clothes those fields with this beauty. And these seasons come round and every season it's the same. They just spring up into life and they're glorious every time. And you're worried whether or not He will clothe you you're worried about it? I want you to look then about the grass. I want you to look. I want you to think about it, child of God. I want you to see how they, they flower. God sprinkles the beauty of these things all over the face of His earth. And He's going to take care of you O oh, ye of little faith. Oh, you're so, you're so little in faith. This, this, this God of yours, this, this God that you worship, who is omniscient, omnipotent, and benevolent, why do you question Him? He knows the need. He has the power to meet it. 
And he has the love that drives him to be willing to meet that need in your case. So change how you think. Change how you think. Just. (laughs) I can't even remember how it came up today. (laughs) I'd have to think about it a little longer. But. Oh, I know who it was. I was talking with someone here this morning that, like us, has a little child. And we were talking about how you take the child outside and you plunk them outside and they're quiet and peaceful. It's amazing. It's like, take, take a child indoors that's unsettled and unhappy and take them outside and just put them on the grass. And unless they're hungry and their diaper needs changed or something like that, they'll immediately be content. They're content. And I, I know, I think, I think that adults could pay attention to that. I think some of her murmuring is like to the child that's kind of imprisoned within four walls. And if we just get outside and breathe in fresh air and look at the creation that God has made and, and then consider the ravens and consider the lilies, then the murmuring goes away and the worry goes away and the concern is lifted and we, we breathe in the air. I don't have time to get into it. The personal illustration relates to a family member who was deeply depressed and, and for reasons you could well understand. And the advice given was, and there's more to it than this, but the advice given was, get outside and walk every day. Walk for hours. Walk for hours before lunch, after a big breakfast. And come home, sleep, eat again, and go walking again. Two hours. And this person was in deep depression. At the brink of doing the unspeakable. And day after day after day, followed the advice. And it changed their life. Gave them a sense of hope. Even at 60 years of age. having lost everything, or almost everything. So I, I, think, I think this, this is helpful. Get outside and consider what's all around us. Change how you think. Secondly, change what you seek. Change what you seek. Verse 29. Seek not ye what ye shall eat, or what ye shall drink, neither be of doubtful mind. So this general theme comes up again about drinking, eating, and so on. For all these things do the nations of the world seek after, and your Father knoweth that you have need of these things. Change what you seek. Note first then what the world seeks. What does the world seek? They seek, well, everyone seeks something in life, but Christ here gives a command in relation to this to not be like the nations of this world. Seek not what you eat or drink. And again, it's not saying, can I eat anything, eat nothing, whatever. It's not saying that. It is stop, stop allowing your life to be revolved around the material. 
Now the danger, the ditch is on the other side. And early Christianity had this ditch. It was called Gnosticism. And the Gnostics believed that the entire material world is evil. And in so doing, it led to the logical denial of the incarnation of the Son of God. Because how could God, who is not evil, take the material that is evil? And so their their premise, the presupposition of all material things being evil, led them into heresy. But the material world is not inherently evil. I wonder at the eyes that fail to see the beauty of God's creation and the marvel of His goodness and His benevolence, sending the rain on the just and the unjust, kindly caring for for billions of people who largely never even lift up a whisper of thanksgiving to Him. We're not to hate the material. But the caution is, don't seek. Don't let your life be driven by, motivated by. Don't let all your concerns revolve around eating, drinking, material things. Material is not bad. I mean, even... Our Lord teaches us to give thanks for our meals, doesn't He? I mean, that in itself shows that we can have gratitude for this material thing. Food, provision, be thankful to Him. So we're not to hate it. It's not saying hate it, cast it away, remove it out of your life. You, You can't do that. You're not being asked to do that. But the nations of this world have, everything is about this. Everything is about the material. It's about more and better and bigger and greater. That's that's what drives them. The material things. And so our Lord gives again one of these, these, these exhortations in relation to anxiety at the end of verse 29. Neither be of doubtful mind. It's very interesting. It's like the word brightness that we looked at this morning. It's only found once here in the New Testament. And we get our English word meteor from the Greek word that underlines this doubtful mind. And it signifies something suspended. Something suspended in midair. So you can understand why we've termed a meteor, something that seems to be suspended, traveling through space. But here it's, it has this sense of this doubtful mind is a man who is constantly in this anxious suspense. It's like he's just waiting for disaster to strike. He imagines that the world is against him. He thinks that no one's in control of this little ship I'm in. No, one, no one's able to help me here. I have to do everything. And I, he's just it's kind of constantly living in this suspended sense of anxiety, worried about what might transpire. You can see him. Sitting there constantly, worried, worried. Every headline, every dip in the stock market, every, I mean, (laughs) even I, I have to say, did perk up when I heard that, uh, what was it, 12, 12 food processing factories have been destroyed in the last month. 
strange. But I leave that for you to think about, but not to worry about. Don't worry about it. Although I did say to my wife, go and get a few more bags of rice. <laughs> Don't be in this constant sense of suspense. That's the way the world is. They don't know anyone's caring for them. They have to care for themselves. They seek after all these material things. They're driven by the material world in which they live. But you, my disciples, are different. You're fa- Yeah, oh, that's sweet. Don't let that just kind of in one ear, out the other. Let it, let it sink down. Your father, your father. Not everyone has a father who cares. Not everyone has that blessing. But if you're in Christ, you do. Your Father knoweth. He's always knowing about it. And He knows that you have need of these things. Again, so that that actually builds upon their significance. You don't cast away food. You don't cast away clothing. You don't cast away drink as if they're irrelevant. You need them. And He knows about it. But he so orders things that he has such a care and concern for you. He wants to lift something of the burden of that so that you can focus the motivation of your life on him and his will and his desire for you and his kingdom. So he gives rest. I mean, that's, that's the sense of it. You know, neither be of doubtful mind. That's, that's the opposite of having rest. God gives to his people rest. Not this sense of suspense, anxious suspense, wondering what's going to happen. That's not rest. That's not leading me beside still waters and lying down in green pastures. That's, that's not it. But that's what our Father has appointed. That's what He has given to you. Green pastures, still waters, they're yours. And He leads you right there. So don't stop living in this constant Suspended sense of, I don't know what's going to happen. You're of doubtful mind. You live in this constant sense of doubtful mind. But your father knows. Your father knows. I hope you can say he's my father. You're saved. You're washed in the blood of Christ. You boys and girls, you're taught to say the Lord's Prayer, our Father, but you really know him as your father. Make sure, boys and girls, you know him as your father. He's my father. I know it. cares. He does care. It's wonderful. And so we can learn from the psalmist who tells us it's better to trust in the Lord than to put confidence in man. Psalm 118, verse 8. Or Psalm 34, 22. The Lord redeemeth the soul of his servants, and none of them that trust in him shall be desolate. They'll not be neglected. They're his. So, that's what the world seeks. What does the Christian seek? Verse 31. But rather, seek ye the kingdom of God, and all these things shall be added unto you. I've dealt with this, even mentioned it last week. It's not like they have no importance. You have need of these things, verse 30. But don't you seek those things. You need them, but don't seek them. Seek the kingdom of God. 
Seek that which relates to God. Seek, set your affections upon things which are above, not on things on the earth, Colossians 3. So that's what you're to seek. Which brings us then thirdly to consider change what you treasure. Change what you treasure. The last few verses, they all kind of hinge on verse 34. Where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. And the correlation between your heart and where your treasure is, it's not, our Lord's not giving a command here, and He's not making a suggestion. He's just stating a, a plain fact. This is how it is. Where your treasure is, there your heart is. What you value will be seen in what you treasure. If you regard your material possessions as your treasure, then your heart will be set upon them, upon the things of this earth. And that was the case for the the rich farmer. He set his affections, he set everything on the earth. He didn't think about amidst his prosperity, how may I use this for God's glory? How may I be a blessing to other people? I mean, you kind of, there's, there should be a sense of, like, how do I divide this up? Amidst all this wealth, how do I divvy it up? That's stewardship. God has blessed me with this great harvest. How do I steward it all and send it to where it needs to go to the glory of God? Instead, it was all for Him. It's all for me. Because that was His treasure. That's how you define him. The richest man in the community. That's what he was known as. Not the godliest, not the wisest, but the richest. A couple of things to note here. Treasure the kingdom and you'll have the kingdom. Treasure the kingdom and you'll have the kingdom. Verse 32. Fear not, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Seek ye the kingdom of God. It is your Father's pleasure to give it. Seek it, and you'll have it. That's encouraging, because not everything you seek, you're promised to get. And all the world will promise, seek this, and you may get it. Seek the other, and you may get it. And you go after it, and you pour your energy into it. You don't get it. Not always. The Lord says, Seek ye the kingdom of God, and you'll have it. Fear not, little flock. It is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Just to break down this text, this wonderful text, verse 32. It deserves its own sermon, but we'll refrain. But there's a concern reflected here. Fear not, little flock. God's people fear. We do. It comes into our hearts. And we need to hear the divine exhortations to not fear and the reasons why. And that's what our Lord is doing. He doesn't tell us just stop fearing. He tells us why not to fear. Of course, if you seek the things of this earth, you won't understand or be comforted by this. This only applies to genuine disciples. Genuine disciples get it. They say, I understand that. If I seek the kingdom, that's what makes me a disciple. I mean, you can't be a disciple and not a seeker of the kingdom. The fact that you seek the kingdom is evidence that you're a disciple. 
And so the concern is, well, will I have enough? Will I have enough? Fear not. Fear not, little flock. Yes. Little flock. You know there was a huge crowd standing before Jesus on this occasion? I mean, multitudes. He calls them a little flock. Because the Lord's people often are just a little flock. They're not always great numbers. By the time all said and done, up in the upper room, all the thousands of people that had been reached by the Lord Jesus Christ, had witnessed His miracles, had heard of His power, had experienced the eloquence of His speeches and sermons. By the time all said and done, there in the upper room, there's about 120. I'm not saying there weren't some others that knew Him that just weren't there in the upper room. It's likely that that was the case. But there in the upper room, there's about 120. It's just a little flock. It's a little flock. And yet it still matters to him. Fear not, little flock. Fear not, small and weak people. There's a concern reflected. He understands the concern. The fearfulness that grips our hearts. These disciples are being called. They've already heard language that calls them to lay down your life. Take up the cross. They've heard all of this. They're, they're, they're being pressed. Pressed out of comfort. And I, I, I hope some of the sermons, as we've gone through these, these discipleship passages, because they are, these last sections that we've been dealing with, they're dealing with discipleship issues. And, and we should feel they're cutting edge. They should be kind of provoking us, making us, I, 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 I've, I've gotten slack and I'm not understanding the call. The call to live for Christ, first and foremost. And so part of it is, is worry. Can you afford to be sold out for Christ? So there's a concern reflected. There's a care depicted. He uses language. Look at it. Verse 32. Flock, father, kingdom. He could have said, fear not. It has pleased God to make you his own. And that would have been comforting. But he, he fills the mind with pictures. Flock, father, kingdom. And that's on purpose. We're to understand these words and what they're saying. There are sheep. The sheep have a shepherd. These sheep are cared for. And there's a father. There's therefore children. We're not orphans. We have a father. This imagery is to encourage your hearts. And there's a kingdom. Kingdoms have kings. These kings have authority. And they can do things for us. Their subjects have rights and privileges. They are provided for. They are protected. All of this imagery is, is packed into this one statement. Fear not, little flock. For it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Get this imagery. Consider these things. Oh, glorious. So there's a care depicted in the language that he uses here. Tenderly shepherding his people coming like a father to his children and like a king exhorting his subjects in this matter of how to avoid the sin of covetousness and stop being anxious about the material things. And the condition indicated is it is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. And the sense is you don't need to fear because it has pleased the father to give you the kingdom as you seek it. He gives it. So He gives all the blessings of it. You're a, part, you're a participant in it. And so you have all the blessings of being 
being part of this kingdom. The forgiveness of sins. The righteousness of Christ. A home in glory. The assurance of all the promises of God, they are, they are yours. And all the benefits, both in this life and the life to come, are ours because you seek the kingdom as your Father's good pleasure to give it. To give you all the benefits of His kingdom. The kingdom of grace in this world and glory in the world to come. Now, I guess, again, just stop before we proceed. Are you in this kingdom? Are you? Are you in it? Are you part of it? Because you don't, you're not born into it. Colossians 1.13, Paul says, Who hath delivered us from the power of darkness and hath translated us into the kingdom of his dear Son. That's true of Paul, who was a Hebrew of the Hebrews, a Pharisee of the tribe of Benjamin, but he was, he was in the power of darkness. And he was translated into the kingdom of God's dear Son. And all the others at Colossae had been changed. Their hearts had been changed. How's yours? So treasure the kingdom and you'll have the kingdom. Treasure the kingdom and you'll have the kingdom. Think, what does the king want? What does the king want? What does my father want? What does the great shepherd and bishop of my soul want? And let your life be governed by that. Yes, yes, you have the material things and you have to... You have to give some thought to them. You're not just absent-minded about the realities of life. But don't let them govern. Don't go from day to day and week to week and month to month and year to year and you're just driven by this materialism and all the promises of the American dream. There are many people who have prioritized the American dream and like the rich farmer, they get their dream. And in eternity, it becomes the American nightmare. Damned. Soul lost. Nothing. Treasure the kingdom and you'll have the kingdom. Treasure lasting riches and you'll have lasting riches. Verse 33. Sell that you have and give alms. Again, not, don't sell everything. It's not like you fathers give it all away. Just the next person who walks through the door, I'm going to give them all my wealth. And, and you know, then your family are starving. I mean, that's, that's not it. It's, it call, God doesn't call us to do this. He doesn't even call us to ignore future planning, which the rich farmer did to a degree, oh, to an excessive degree. But there's a place for it. And my time is gone. I don't have time to deal with it all. But Proverbs 6, considering the ant, Consider her ways. Be wise. What does she do? She provides her meat in summer and gathers her food in the harvest. She's wise. She makes hay while the sun shines. She knows how it works in the seasons of life. And Paul says to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians 12, verse 14, Behold, the third time I am ready to come to you, and I will not be burdensome to you. For I seek not yours, but you. For the children ought not to lay out for the parents, but the parents for the children. He's setting out a principle of life. That's generally how it is. The parents lay up for the children. That requires future planning, forethought, careful organization of, of the means that God entrusts to you. And everyone's able to do it in different degrees, or some in the province of God, not at all. But 
That's generally how it is. And here, take away this. You read verse 33. Sell that you have, give alms, provide yourselves bags which wax not old, a treasure in the heavens that faileth not, where no thief approacheth, neither moth corrupteth. You don't get justification by selling everything you have. You don't. You don't give evidence even that you're justified by giving away everything that you have. Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 13, verse 3. Though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned and have not charity, it profiteth me nothing. But here, here's it, if I can kind of crystallize the idea here. You're justified through Christ. And you seek the kingdom, you get the benefits of the kingdom. That means the king gives you his righteousness. And the king gives promise of the forgiveness of sins. And the king gives the assurance that you're going to be with him eternally in glory. You're always going to be with him. These are your benefits. But, but, your giving is a mark and evidence of grace. And the degree to which you can sacrificially give will be an evidence of the amount of grace in this area that God has given you. So what you do in your giving is you display grace. That's what you're doing. When you give, you display grace. And so Jesus says, sell. Sell. Don't keep everything for yourself. I mean, if you have barns that are stored up, then, then you don't need it. There's way more than you need. Sell it and give it to someone and, and lay up treasure in heaven. Lay up that which can't ever be taken from you. You're sitting on the edge of your seat trying to protect your little wealth. You're, you're sitting there like the rich farmer boasting yourself that you have all you need for many years. And you have no treasure in heaven. Lay up treasure in heaven. Lay up treasure in heaven. Give what you can. Display grace in your generosity. Give alms. Go beyond as God helps you. And do it cheerfully. So as we close, the sin of covetousness is not possessions. It's not having possessions, but how you obtain them and what you do with them. Right? So Barnabas, seeing the need of the church, what does he do? He sells a piece of land to help because they're starving. People are starving. And the church is suffering. The Jewish church is, is suffering in those early years. At first, the suffering was because they had believed in the Lord Jesus. And all their Jewish friends, as I've said many times, they were like, not going to your business anymore, not buying your works as a carpenter, not buying your bread as a baker, not buying your meat as a butcher. I'm not supporting you because you follow Jesus. And all their business just disappeared overnight. So first, first, they suffered because of that. Then they suffered because of a famine. And some who had more Give. They sold their lands. And they helped. Not by force. Not some form of socialism. But the grace of God that moves the heart to sell and give alms for a treasure in the heavens that fails not. Where no one can steal what you lay up and no moth can corrupt Living where we do, we need to be extra cautious. I think we would agree. No? We need to be extra cautious. 
God's glory is our objective. Jesus Christ is our wealth. And serving others is our occupation. Don't let the world entangle you and mess up your priorities. May the Lord bless His Word. Let's bow together in prayer. We'll be going downstairs in just a few minutes, and you'll quickly be distracted by conversation, and it'll all be legitimate, no doubt. But in these moments, you have an opportunity. If there's a need in your heart and your soul, deal with it now. Deal with it now. If the problem is so pressing, so great, if you're struggling with it, and you need some counsel, I'm happy to talk with you. But seek the Lord. Make sure you're in the kingdom. Our gracious God, we pray thy blessing upon thy word. Oh, Lord Jesus, we bless thee for thy honesty and thy love for us. We're thankful that thou art so loving to tell us what we need to hear. And God, I pray that these words will not quickly be forgotten by those of us living in America with the degree of prosperity that we enjoy. Please, God, we beg of Thee, help us to be good stewards of what You've given. Help us to understand the balance of present needs, future responsibilities, and the needs of those all around us. Give us bigger hearts. Expand them by grace, we pray. May we never fall into the lie that because we give much, we are justified more. We're thankful that Jesus Christ gave to a degree we can never replicate. Though He was rich, yet for our sakes became poor, that we through His poverty might be rich. God bless Thy Word to your hearts, and go with us downstairs in all of our conversation. Help us to edify one another, and love one another, and encourage one another by Thy grace. Be with us through the week. Strengthen our faith. Fill us with your Spirit. Bless the food provided downstairs. May the grace of our Lord Jesus, the love of God our Father, and the fellowship of the Spirit be with all thy people now and evermore.